There are many wonderful promises in the Word of God, promises that we cling to, especially during those times of suffering that we've just heard sung about, promises that bring us comfort and encouragement during times of trial, promises that reassure us. There is one in particular that promises us the very presence of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the promise that God gave to Joshua when Joshua was taking the reins of leadership after the death of Moses in order to reassure him that he would be with Joshua even as he was with Moses. He said, I will never leave you. But that promise is not just for Joshua. That promise is for all of us because in Hebrews chapter 13, the Bible picks up that promise and says it for all of us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We like promises like that, promises that assure us that we will never be abandoned or alone. Sure, there are times that we want to be alone, perhaps even times that we need to be alone. Depending on your personality, these times may be more often for you than they are for others, but ultimately, we all want people around us. We need people around us. God has designed us to need and desire other people. And so we don't want to be alone all of the time. We need people in our lives, people that we can count on to stick with us through thick and thin. Friends, family members, and yes, even our Heavenly Father, so that we know no matter what happens, good or bad, we will never truly be alone or abandoned. And yet, sadly, we feel like that sometimes. More than feel like it, we know that it is true sometimes. It is our experience that we are alone and abandoned. Perhaps you can think of a spouse who many years ago pledged their love to you until death do you part, only years later to abandon you. And you can still remember the hurt and pain you went through. Perhaps you had a best friend, a BFF, if we still use that term, I don't know. I, every time I try to use a current term, when I get home for lunch, my daughter tells me, Dad, we don't use that term anymore. So I don't know if we use BFF or not, but it means best friends forever. Perhaps you've had one of those or maybe multiple BFFs, but none of them have stayed around forever. Perhaps you are a widow or a widower. Your spouse did not intentionally leave you. But the feelings of abandonment and being alone are raw and real regardless. So you know the pain during periods of your life when others have abandoned you for whatever reason, leaving you with pain and sorrow. And while we can identify with this, nothing prepares us for the text that we look at this morning. We try our best to identify with characters in the Bible. I try to put myself in the position of the characters. I try to think of you in that same position as I prepare sermons so that we can identify with a character in the Bible, yes, even Jesus, so that we can learn and grow in our own lives from what we see in Scripture. And so we try to identify and then apply. But nothing compares with the scene we examine today. Nothing else in Scripture and nothing in our experience. David was betrayed by his son Absalom. That doesn't compare to this. We know that Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his son Isaac, but it doesn't compare to this. 
We know in the New Testament that Paul was abandoned by his co-workers from time to time, some of them leaving in the midst of a missionary journey. But it doesn't compare to this. You have felt left alone. You have felt left behind. But as deep as those feelings are, they do not compare to what we see Jesus going through in these early morning hours of Friday, Passion Week. Look with me at Mark chapter 14. We'll start in verse 27. We'll go down through verse 52, and we will see that by the time we get through with this section, Jesus is abandoned and alone. And as we've done often throughout the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to read it section by section. So let's start with verses 27 through 31. Mark 14, 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, the same. While the overall uh, topic of this entire section is the fact that Jesus is going to be left abandoned and alone, it does not begin that way. In fact, it begins with a passionate pledge of the exact opposite. They will not abandon him, they say. They are willing to die, if that's what it takes, rather than to deny Christ. Last week, we were in the Last Supper We were on Thursday evening when they were celebrating the Passover, and Jesus transformed that meal into a commemorative meal, not of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but of Christ dying and rising again for us, a meal that we still celebrate to this day. They have now left that home where they were celebrating. They are making their way, or they are already there, to the Mount of Olives. And just minutes or hours earlier, Jesus has dropped that bombshell. That statement that none of them saw coming, one of you is a betrayer, one who had been with him for all of those years, one who had ministered side by side with him, one who had talked and acted like all of the other 11, because after all, none of them suspected Judas when Jesus said, one of you is a betrayer. No doubt Judas has now left the group, thus revealing to the rest of them that he must be the one Jesus was talking about. And the magnitude of that announcement must still be swirling in their minds. Perhaps they are angry at Judas. Maybe they they are confused about what all this means. Maybe they, as we so often say, I I just can't get my head around it. I, I can't wrap my thoughts around it. Maybe they don't know what to think. But the startling news is not over. The night has another surprise. Jesus is about to drop a second bombshell on the 11 who remain. It is not just that there is one who is going to betray him. It gets worse. The other 11 will abandon him by morning. And this is not just a hunch. This is something Jesus knows is going to transpire because, in fact, it is a fulfillment of Scripture, specifically Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 which speaks about the fact that when a shepherd is struck, the sheep will stray. 
Now we know the shepherd and sheep imagery. It is very well known throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New. Psalm 23 remains the most beloved song. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It speaks about the protection of the shepherd. It speaks about the presence of the shepherd. And it speaks about the provision for the sheep from the shepherd. But here the imagery is not positive. It is not a pastoral picture here of a a nice field where the shepherd is overseeing his sheep. Here it is the picture of when something happens to the shepherd, the sheep will naturally stray and wander away. Before we get to the passionate pledge, I do want you to see that Jesus makes it very clear in his prediction that this will not be the end. Their falling away will not be final. Not only does he predict once again his own resurrection, but he actually goes beyond that and says, I'm going to reunite with you in Galilee. That's up in the north. That's where this whole thing began. That is where Jesus first called these disciples to himself. And now he says, after I am stricken and after I rise again, I am going to meet you there and reestablish you, reunite you, and recommission you for the mission that still lies ahead. But they don't seem to hear that second part. They merely latch on to the statement that they would fall away. Sometimes we are guilty of that as well, aren't we? Hearing only the first part of something someone says and immediately jumping to conclusions and going over in our minds how we're going to respond, never even hearing the second part at all. Jesus makes it very clear that their falling away is not like Judas's. His was a complete and permanent rebellion. We saw that last week when Jesus said, woe is to that man that betrays me. It would have been better for him to not have been born. Not so with the 11. Theirs will be a momentary lapse of courage that will be forgiven. Jesus in his grace and mercy is telling them beforehand that when you fall away, I am going to forgive you. And I am going to reunite with you and recommission you for service. But Peter is angry. Angry at the very thought of such a thing. He's offended that Jesus would say this. We've heard him numerous times speaking on behalf of the group. Sometimes he says some very good things. He's known for several tremendous statements that he makes. But he's also known for, as we say, putting his foot in his mouth from time to time. And that is true here as well. He's throwing the rest of the group under the proverbial bus. And in fact, you might not have thought of it in these terms, but he's actually calling Jesus a liar. Jesus says, you will all fall away. And Peter says, no, that is not true. We are not going to fall away. Maybe the rest of them will. I can see that happening. And that wouldn't surprise me if the other ten did betray you, Jesus. I, I get that, but not me. Peter is adamant. Everyone else might, but not me. And so he's calling Jesus a liar in this passionate pledge. And not only that, he is insulting all of the other disciples in the process. Peter believes himself to be the exception. The one man among men who has the courage and resolve to stick it out. Rather than being humbled at Jesus' prediction, he responds with self-assertion and conceit. I can do it. I have what it takes. You don't know me well enough. I will not fall away. 
But Jesus is not swayed. And instead, he gets more specific. Peter, the truth is, you will deny me three times before dawn. Now, keep in mind, dawn is only a few hours away. We don't know exactly what time this is, but we know that the Passover meal went from sundown to midnight. So it is clearly after midnight, and it is prior to dawn. So there's only about five or six hours there that this is possibly occurring. And so it's only a few hours until dawn, and yet Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows twice, perhaps that first crow is a warning, a warning that Peter does not heed. But before that cock crows twice, Peter, you will deny me three times. Three denials is not a momentary slip. But Peter doubles down. He is sure of himself. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. And notice that last phrase in this section, verse 31. And they all said the same. Every one of these 11 men commit to death over disloyalty. Everyone confidently proclaimed their commitment to Christ, and they all said the same. It's relatively easy to make a passionate pledge. I mean, especially in the midst of our comfort and security. I pledge to you this morning that I am going to give a million dollars to our future needs fund for whatever needs we have in the future, whether that's construction or, or uh, new buildings or whatever. I pledge to you a million dollars, but I can't fulfill that pledge because I don't have that kind of money. I can say it, but I can't fulfill it. I could have an emotional end to this service, and I could try to sway you into making a pledge this morning, maybe a pledge to witness to somebody this week, maybe a pledge to go on the mission field, maybe a pledge to give something to our uh, church offering. I, I could make those kinds of emotional pleas, and some of you would respond. You would say, yes, I am willing to do that. Some of you would respond out of a sincerity. Some of you would respond out of peer pressure. It's the spiritual thing to do. But fulfilling that pledge is a whole other matter. I believe these disciples were very serious in making this pledge. That's why I've called it a passionate pledge. I don't think they're lying. I don't think they're being deceptive. I think they really believe that they are going to follow Jesus until death. But there is more, than following, there is more to following Christ than making a passionate pledge or profession. And as we'll see in a moment, and as you already know, Jesus was, of course, right and so our second episode in this section that talks about Jesus being abandoned and alone is in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. 
The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. For many of us, this is a familiar story. A tranquil setting in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus issuing this sorrowful prayer. The word Gethsemane means oil press and was no doubt a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. I'm confident that they had been there before, perhaps many times. They had been there to get away from the crowds. They had been there for rest. Surely they had been there for teaching, and they had been there for fellowship. On this night, all 11 are with him, except he instructs eight of them to sit and wait, while he takes three of them on a little further. And those three we've come to know as his inner circle, the inner core of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. But in this case, they might not have been selected just because they were the inner three. They might have been selected because they were the most recent and loudest to boast. We've already heard Peter do that. But you may remember we heard James and John do that some chapters ago. James and John were the two that came to Jesus and said to him, will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, we want to sit, one on your right and one on your left, when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus said, well, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Referring to the sorrow and the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on him. And they confidently said, we can drink it. Meaning they would walk through sorrow and death with him. So these three men have all recently boasted, they've all recently bragged about their total commitment to Christ. These should be the perfect companions for Jesus during this time of crisis. So he leaves these three in another location with slightly different instructions. This time they are to watch. That's the same word that we saw repeatedly at the end of chapter 13, which was translated in that case, stay awake. And that's what the title of my sermon was at the end of chapter 13, stay awake. And we said then, and it applies now, that it's not talking about physical sleep. It's talking instead about spiritual alertness, which Jesus will clarify when he tells them the second time in verse 38. Having left eight of the disciples in one location and three more in the second location, Jesus now goes alone further into the garden to pray, alone, except he is with his Father. And the words in this story are piled together in an attempt to show us the gravity and weight of what is taking place. Verse 33, he was greatly distressed and troubled Verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Verse 35, he fell on the ground. Jesus is clearly carrying a heavy burden. Nothing in his ministry compares to this moment. There has never been another moment that compares to what is going on in the garden. And yet we have to ask ourselves, why was he troubled so greatly? Is this the anxiety of a man who has just learned that he only has a few hours to live? Is this a man who's just been told by his doctors that you only have a day or two? No, we know that Jesus knew about this hour. He knew about this moment. 
He's been predicting it for a long time. Repeatedly, he told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and there I will be delivered over to men, and I will suffer, and I will die, and I will rise again. This is not news to him. So this is not the anxiety of a man who knows he is about to die or has just learned that. We have to admit that there have been other men who have known that they are going to die, other women who come to the end of their life knowing that they are about to die, and yet they do it with far less sorrow. I mean, some have even died with joy, knowing that the future is far better than the present. Some we call martyrs, men and women who have died because of their faith in Christ, some of whom, if you read their stories, went to their death singing and rejoicing filled with joy at the prospect of dying for their faith in Christ. So why do we see such sorrow as Jesus uh, comes near his death? Why is he now asking God if there is another way? It is certainly not because he hates to leave the disciples. Neither is it because of the physical pain that awaits him as grotesque as that will be. Here is the key, and this is what makes this scene unlike any other. Jesus will be abandoned by everyone. The nation of Israel has turned against him. All of his disciples will forsake him and flee. The Roman courts will condemn him for no crime at all. But what causes him all of this sorrow is the fact that he will be abandoned by his father as well. The reference to the cup speaks of the wrath of God poured out against sin. That's what the hour refers to as well. For Christ to bear our sins and in his body, he had to take God's wrath for those sins. And in that moment, his eternal fellowship with the Father is shattered. That is what none of us can imagine. That is what I cannot adequately express in words. None of us can fathom what it must have been like to be sinless and yet bear the sins of humanity. We cannot imagine an eternal and a perfect relationship that has never known separation or any hint of sin suddenly being ruptured. But to be our sin bearer meant alienation from God. And this is what is bringing Jesus to the ground in the garden. He is certainly not trying to get out of doing God's will, but he is struggling with the the reality of that will and what it means for him to fully submit to it. I mean, here in the garden, we see the full humanity of Jesus in view, though, of course, it doesn't diminish his deity. And it reminds us that Jesus did not waltz through his suffering because he is God. He genuinely and seriously suffered. Ultimately, of course, he submits himself to the will of the Father, something he must do before he submits his body to death. Now, I know we often use a similar phrase. Many times we tack it on to the end of our prayers. Whatever it is we're asking God for, we say at the end, but nevertheless, your will be done. But we don't mean it. It's just the spiritual way to end our prayers. You say, well, how do you know we don't mean it? Because we get mad at God when we don't get our will. And because we've asked God for something and we don't get what we want and then we get mad, that tells me that we really didn't want God's will to start with. We wanted our own. But that is not the case with Jesus. He genuinely means this. Father, if there is another way, but nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus is satisfied completely with the Father's plan. And all of this takes place three times. 
Three seasons of sorrowful prayer. Three times returning to the three disciples who are told to watch. And each time they are fast asleep. Now, of course, we could talk about the lateness of the hour. Again, it's two or three in the morning. We could talk about the big meal that they've just eaten together, and you know how tired you can get after a big meal. We could talk about the three cups of wine that they have enjoyed as part of that meal. But the truth of the matter is, we can look at our own experience and say, there are times when we want to sleep, and we can't. There are times, especially as parents, that we are anxious over our children for some reason, and though we want a good night's sleep, it eludes us because our anxiety for the situation is keeping us awake. Jesus is entering the toughest moment of his life, and you would think that they would identify with that and be anxious and worried over what he's going through, and that would keep them awake above all of the other details, but it does not. Now, did you notice in verse 37 when Jesus comes back, And he calls Peter Simon. You remember Jesus had changed his name to Peter after that great confession that he made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, heaven has revealed that to you. And I'm going to call you Peter from now on, which means rock. But he doesn't call him Peter here. He calls him Simon, reverting to his old name because he is not living up to his name any longer. And remember, these men just hours ago have boasted of their pledge to follow Jesus even to death, and yet they fail to stay awake and pray. Now, I want to show you one more thing before we move on, something that perhaps we often miss. We tend to naturally think that these men are here for companionship, that Jesus has brought them along for this crisis in his life, for support and encouragement, like we want to have others around us at those times in our life. Or we think, no, Jesus has brought them along to pray for him. He tells them to pray, and so surely he has brought them along so that they can intercede for him. But look again at verse 38. In verse 38, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is telling them to pray for themselves. Because he knows what lies ahead for them. He knows that they are willing to follow him. They've made that pledge. But they are also very weak. And that is why they need to remain spiritually alert. He knows what they're going to face. And he wants them to be awake so that they are prepared for it. But the main takeaway from the agony of Jesus in the garden is just how painful it was to bear our sin. To experience God's wrath. And to be abandoned both by men and by God himself so that he could be our sin bearer. Which leads us to the third episode that will result in Jesus being totally abandoned and alone. Verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Our third episode is the intimate betrayal with Judas. We already know the man behind this betrayal. We looked at him last week, and we concluded that after all of these years, his name is still synonymous with betrayal and treachery. No one names their child Judas, and we still use the phrase, he is a Judas, meaning he is a betrayer. But now we are front and center for the act itself. Not just a plot being hatched any longer, now it is put into place. And so Judas arrives at the place where he knew Jesus frequented, having been there before with him. But this time he brings along with him soldiers, no doubt some Roman soldiers along with the Jewish temple police. How many were there? We don't know. Though it is a large enough crowd in order to seize and arrest him and a small enough crowd to not attract attention. You have to remember they still don't want to get attention because Jesus is popular with the masses. There has been a prepared sign that has been agreed upon, the betrayal with a kiss, an intimate greeting between friends, coupled with the term of respect, rabbi, which basically means my teacher. So both word and action make this a particularly heinous act. An act of love triggered by a mission of hate. So much so that one disciple and the other gospels tell us that it is Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of a servant. And those other gospels also tell us that Jesus then healed him. But Mark doesn't go into any of that detail. His focus is on Jesus himself. In fact, some question that story because they say, well, why wasn't Peter arrested? If Peter drew his sword in front of all of these soldiers, why wasn't he arrested? And we don't have an answer for that other than to say clearly their mission was to arrest Jesus. That was their focus. The rest are going to flee into the darkness of night. Jesus is somewhat taken aback by the number of men and the weapons that they bring to arrest him. Why this show of force? He says, I've been openly teaching in the temple. And the fact that he says it in that way I, am, I was with you in the temple teaching tells us that some of the temple police were part of this arresting band. Jesus is clearly angered at being treated like a common criminal or a robber. That word can mean common criminal or a, a revolutionary. But as usual, he knows that all of this is fulfillment of Scripture. Now the question is, which Scripture? Isaiah 53 says that he will be numbered with the transgressors, which certainly would qualify in this particular setting. But it's also possible to say this is just a general statement. Rather than referring to one specific Scripture, this is just a a general reference to the fulfillment of Scripture. Regardless, it is another example of the fact that Jesus is in control of the scene, as well as all the others that we've examined. This is not Judas getting the best of him. This is not circumstances spiraling out of control. This, too, is a preordained plan of God, though, again, that does not absolve Judas of his guilt or the consequences for his betrayal. But what I really want to focus on is the statement which concludes this intimate betrayal, verse 50, and they all left him 
and fled. Just as Jesus had predicted, the abandonment and betrayal of Jesus is now complete. He is in the hands of Jewish leaders. He will be led before the Roman courts, and he will do it all alone. None of his family will be there, none of his friends in the gallery for support. There is even this curious story, a story that only Mark records, about a young man who was following as well, and they tried to seize him, and instead he leaves his tunic, his outer garment, and he flees away. And that word, when it says he fled naked, can mean either he had nothing at all on or he had his undergarments only. It is clearly a curious scene. Tradition has always speculated that this young man was none none other than Mark himself, and that this was his way of signing his gospel story. This was his signature in the bottom of the painting. Or this was, as medieval artists used to do, his way of getting into the scene. That is, they used to paint their own faces on the crowds as a way of identifying themselves as the uh, painter of the portrait. Now, we can't know any of this for certain, but it does show us just how complete his abandonment was. No one stood with him. It is why Paul in Romans reminds us that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God, but instead all have become worthless and do not good. Harsh words by Paul, but words that are backed up by the experience of every one of these early disciples. Remember, these are the same men who hours earlier had made such bold professions, death rather than disloyalty. And now it is clearly flight rather than faith. Judas gets the worst of the reputation, and rightfully so. He is the one who betrayed Jesus with this intimate kiss. Peter comes next. We don't place him in the same category as Judas, but the fact that he denied Jesus three times, three times he says, I do not know that man, gives him a scar for the rest of his life as well. But the truth of the matter is, all forsook him and fled. At the toughest moment of his earthly life, Jesus is utterly abandoned and alone. And there is nothing in Scripture that compares to this. There is nothing in our experience that compares to this. This is clearly a tough section of Scripture to fully grasp and ultimately apply. I could try. I could conclude with some observations and applications like, be careful that you do not boast about what you cannot fulfill. After all, the Bible said pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So be careful with your professions. Make sure you can fulfill what you say you're going to do. And those are no doubt wise words that we would do well to follow. Or we could talk about our own prayer life, how that we too at times are overcome with sorrow. And so we learn from Jesus how to persevere in our prayers while at the same time trusting that God's will is best for us. So we could talk about our prayer life and say we must come to the place where we trust in God's will and say this is what I want, but nevertheless your will be done. Another tough lesson to learn I could also draw some analogies to our own experiences about being betrayed by a friend or a co-worker, reminding you of how much that hurt when someone else betrayed you and how you felt. So remember that feeling, and you don't be the one who betrays another. And while there is truth in all of these applications, they undermine the main emphasis of this story, which we ought to focus on. 
This is a story about the abandonment and betrayal of Jesus that left him utterly and completely alone. Alone to face the wrath of men and ultimately to face the wrath of God. And he did it for sinners like you and me so that we would not have to face the wrath of God. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could receive his righteousness in its place. Therefore, what we really need to do with this text, what we must seek to to apply is not some easy application for life. The truth is we really can't fathom all that is taking place here, but we can pause and gaze and see Jesus abandoned and alone. And see him committed and determined to fulfill the Father's will in spite of the tremendous pain and suffering. And as best we can then in response, we can thank him and praise him for doing all of this for us. See him abandoned and alone and hear him say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never be alone because Christ was. And if we trust in what he has done, we will never experience the wrath of God for our sins because he experienced that wrath in our place. That is why we can sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, wondering how he can love us, sinners condemned and unclean. We might wonder how it's possible, but these scenes just before his arrest tell us that it's not only possible, it is reality. And therefore, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let me pray.